for joining us. And for the faithful who remain, we will be in Luke chapter 22 today, preparing for departure. Did you know that containing invasive species of plants and animals and other organisms like uh, Nile virus cost an estimated $138 billion a year? Now, I know you're very smart and you knew about invasive species. Did you know it was $138 billion? Invasive species are those animals and plant organisms that are usually introduced accidentally or unintentionally into a new environment. For example, this is just a few. In 1884, a farmer visiting the Cotton States Exposition in Louisiana brought back a few Venezuelan water hyacinths to decorate the fountain outside of his home in Florida. And today, this uh, purple flower, uh, it chokes out 126,000 acres in Florida waterways. Kudzu, a Japanese vine imported in 1876 to the U.S. to prevent erosion, is currently spreading through the southern U.S. at 150,000 acres per year. Carp was first imported into the U.S. in 1831. Now, there are many varieties of carp now in the U.S. Um, in the 1970s, Asian carp were imported to control algae in the Arkansas uh, fish farms. These carp have escaped to the Mississippi River and now have entered uh, going north to uh, the Great Lakes. And uh, there's a significant fear now of the impact that will have on the fishing industry. Another unique invasive species is the python. Pythons are not natural to the U.S. They have apparently been released in Florida by owners who imported them or purchased them as pets. And because they got so large or whatever, they decided to let them go into the wild. The two main pythons are the Burmese python and the Indian python. Now, the interesting thing is that the Burmese python prefers swampy environments, and they love the Everglades in Florida. Indian pythons prefer high and dry climates, not necessarily in Florida. Both snakes have decimated the small animal population uh, in the Florida Everglades. New findings show that there is a new breed emerging. We don't know how significant it's going to be, but the new DNA contains both Bur uh, Burmese and Indian pythons now into one, and they call this the potential of a super snake. The danger is they can, by the way, they can become 20 feet long, that they would be able to adapt to many environments and move out of the Everglades quickly. Um, invasive species get introduced sometimes unintentionally, sometimes accidentally, and sin is like that. Be careful 
what you grow in your heart. Sin can lead to consequences that were never intended. Sin can even open the door to the demonic. That's what happened to one of Jesus' disciples, and his name was Judas. And that's what we're going to look at this morning in Luke chapter 22. And that's found on page 735 if you grabbed a Bible on the way in. And you'll just have to find it on your smartphone, Luke chapter 22. We're going to look at the first six verses as we begin. And here's what Luke writes. Now the feast of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas called Iscariot, one of the twelve, and Judas went to the chief priests and officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was pre- present. So let's look at the betrayal of Jesus in verses 1 through 6. And first, the setting is in verses 1 and 2. And uh, Luke starts, Now the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover. So let's talk about the time and the place. The time was the festival of the unleavened bread, and it was also called the Passover. And let me explain. The place is in Jerusalem, by the way. Uh, This is where we have been, but the Passover meal was to be eaten inside the walls of Jerusalem, where there was a temple where animals could be sacrificed. Uh, The Passover meal was the first day of the feast, and then followed Uh, seven days of unleavened bread, the unleavened bread festival. Often they were lumped together, and it was just called the Passover festival. The Passover was a time to remember what God had done uh, in the history of Israel, especially from the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 12, where Israel was enslaved in Egypt for 400 plus years under Pharaoh's authority and power, and the Israelites were slaves. And life got harder and harder. God raised up Moses to lead his people out. And eventually, after 10 plagues, the 10th plague was the Passover, when God told his people, here's what I want you to do. I want you to kill a Passover, a lamb, and I want you to spread his blood on the door frames of your home. And I want you to go inside your house and and I want you to eat this certain meal because I am going to pass over the land that night. And wherever there's blood on the doorpost, I am going to pass over. But if there is no blood on the doorpost, then the firstborn of your household will die, animals and humans alike. And that's exactly what happened. And the Egyptians did not put any blood on their doorposts And God's people were covered by the blood of the Passover lamb that they shared. And God said to do this to remember what he had done. His great power and deliverance had accomplished these things. Okay, we see in verse 2 the situation. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were plotting against Jesus. 
They were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus. They were afraid of the people because Jesus was becoming so popular. People just flocked to him. He, he taught and things that they had never heard. And now they're beginning to understand things from the Old Testament that never made sense to them. And he did miracles, and he loved people, and he wasn't judgmental, and he wasn't trying to impress everybody. And uh, Jesus offended the religious leaders, the chief priests and the scribes. And by the way, these are two opposing political parties in the religious system. One's liberal, one's conservative. He offended them on many occasions. He criticized their use of the temple and their practice of religious customs. He called them hypocrites. And you can imagine uh, they were disappointed. And so he's becoming too popular. They feared that taking Jesus publicly would stir such a commotion. It would raise the ire of the Romans, uh, concerned about some kind of uprising, and it would make them unpopular in the eyes of the people. This would cause uh, great commotion and unwanted attention on the religious leaders. The opportunity in verses 3 and 4, then Satan entered Jesus, uh, Judas, excuse me, Satan entered Judas called Iscariot, one of the 12. This is really sad. He is one of the 12. He is one that Jesus invited into his close circle, and he tracked with the 12. He followed Jesus where he went. And this is going to be no surprise to Jesus, and it was no surprise to Jesus from the beginning. And I'm not sure why Judas got invited in, other than to carry out what God had planned. Verse 4, and Judas, and Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray them. Satan entered Judas. Ju Judas is no longer just making decisions for himself. Judas is now under the influence of the darkest evil. Satan has entered him. So Judas goes to the religious leaders, and it also includes the officers of the temple. There's a bodyguard there. There's a security there. There's a temple police. Because this is so important, the chief priests are, are present and they have also got their security guard because that's who's going to do the arrest. That's who's going to execute their plan. So the chief priests, they, they know what they're doing. They are really serious about their plan. And so they discuss how they're going to betray Jesus. Um, we don't know all the reasons why Judas would do this. Uh, was Judas disappointed in Jesus? Was he frustrated with the way things were going? Um, greed was a very strong motivation in Judas's life, and we'll see that in just a minute. Did Judas have different expectations for Jesus? You know, that's pretty dangerous when Christ followers put expectations on Jesus that he can't meet, because that's not following. That's trying to lead Jesus. Uh, was, was Judas depressed or discouraged? Early on, there was something growing in Judas's heart. And um, 
we get a glimpse of this in John chapter 12, verses 4 through 6. This takes place when Mary, the sister, uh, the sister of Lazarus, just waiting for it to come up. Uh, she anoints Jesus uh, with a very costly nard, a perfume, a very expensive. It was like going all out for Jesus. And Jesus viewed it as an anointing for his burial. Um, and so here's what happens when, when, it, when this takes place. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Next slide. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Sin was crouching at the door all along in Judas's life. Greed was this very powerful motivation for him. Judas, think about this, he had a habit of stealing money from Jesus' commitment to advance the kingdom. Judas was robbing God. Money that should have gone to advance the kingdom was used for Judas' personal use. Will a man rob God, the prophet Malachi says? The answer is sometimes. The arrangement, verses 5 and 6, they were delighted and agreed to give him money. Uh, this, is a, this is fantastic from the perspective of the religious leaders. Um, Judas is an insider. He's one of the 12, and he's going to turn on Jesus. We've been waiting for a chink in his armor like this. For one of the insiders is going to see that Jesus isn't that great after all. He's willing to turn him over and expose Jesus. And the great thing is he can do this because he knows where Jesus goes. He knows his habits. He knows the right time. And they can do this in a private setting. And it doesn't have to be public. And the multitudes don't have to see what's going on. So Matthew tells us that Judas was paid 30 pieces of silver. Verse 6, he consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Judas said yes to this temptation, this opportunity, this sin. Judas's sin just keeps multiplying. Sin can beget sin. So Judas betrayed Jesus, and this, there, was, there was his circumstances, there was his feelings involved, there was this opportunity, and there was this offer. Question for us. Have you betrayed Jesus? Have you betrayed Jesus? But isn't that what sin is? Betrayal of Jesus. It's easy to think about our own sin sometimes as being small. It's not hurting anyone, not hurting anyone else. It can be private. It can be a secret between two people or a few people. I'm not as bad as other people. I'm not as bad as at least so-and-so. Have you betrayed Jesus? Think about it. 
I should say, how have we betrayed Jesus? Can it be our thought life? Getting caught up in pornography? Can it be in our sexuality? When we get involved outside of a commitment in marriage? Can it be with our money and we get sloppy or greedy with the use of our money? With our speech? How do we? You know the answer for yourself. Psalm 139, verses 22 and 23 can redirect us here. You probably know it. If you don't, write it down. Psalm 139, verses 22 and 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Invite God to test you periodically. Give him permission to examine your heart. If he shows you something that you need to deal with, just be honest and deal with it. So Judas agrees to betray Jesus, verses 1 through 6, and now we come to the Last Supper in chapter 22, verses 7 through 23. And the timing, verse 7, then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. The Passover meal required that each family sacrifice a lamb without blemish. It was to be eaten at their Passover meal to remember God passing over Egypt. As I mentioned already, blood was to be in Exodus 12, blood was put on the door frames of the homes of the Israelite families, and that God would pass over, and that blood protected them. That blood showed their hearts for God. Uh, it demonstrated their faith. To do what God says is the demonstration of their faith. And the Passover was about a change from their bondage to a freedom. The Passover meal was about forgiveness. Uh, God's people in Israel did not deserve God to pass over Egypt for them and deliver them. It was by grace. Now, the irony of this whole thing, the religious leaders plot to arrest Jesus and execute him at the Passover when the nation of Israel is going to celebrate God's grace, his compassion to deliver them from bondage and give them freedom. Early in Jesus' ministry, John, the apostle, recalls John the Baptist's words, John 1.29. And the next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That was prophetic. This is early in the ministry. And John, as a prophet, uh, just, I think it happens right on the scene. I don't think he thought about this until the very moment, and I'm, this is my opinion, I don't think he thought about it until the very moment he saw Jesus and these words just rolled off. Behold the Lamb of God. There was something John saw. Jesus was the Lamb of God. 
and he will become the Passover lamb, and he will experience the death of the lamb, and it is his blood that God will pass over when it gets applied to our account. Verses 8 through 13, the preparations. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go, make preparations for us to eat the Passover. By the way, this is leadership training. Peter and John, they seem to be the most significant leaders among the apostles, and they are given this task. Uh, go, make preparations for us to eat the Passover. We want you to prepare the meal. We want you to see that it happens. Um, and the interesting thing is you watch Jesus here. He is in control of the situation. He knows what's coming. He knows he's being betrayed. He is not fearful. He just keeps stepping the steps. Verse 9, where are we to prepare for it, they ask. That's a good question. Verse 10, he replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar. So they are outside the city when, when this is um, happening, and they're going to get ready for the, being in the city for the Passover meal. As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him uh, to that house where he enters. Interesting thing about that is, uh, from what I understand, men didn't usually carry jars of water. If men carried water, it was usually just in a leather pouch. It was women who carried, I don't know why they did this, but women had to carry the heavy stuff. They carried the jars of water. So follow this man, if he's carrying a jar of water to that house, he enters, and say to the owner of the house, the teacher ask, where is the guest room? Where may I eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished, and make preparations there. They left Guess what? They found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. So he, Jesus laid out the whole plan. It was all mapped out. He is directing the events. He is not a victim of his circumstances. Now, preparations would have included they needed a Passover lamb, at least one. They needed some bitter herbs and spices and some wine, and they were to make they needed a place to make ready. In this case, there is a man who provides a second floor room, an upper room. Um, Sue and I had a chance to experience a, a Passover Seder, except it wasn't on the Passover, in Israel, in an upper room, in a situation kind of like this, kind of like it. Um, so on this occasion, uh, Peter and John followed all of Jesus's instructions to the T. Is that important? You know what? That's just living by faith. It's taking God at his word. Um, it was exactly as Jesus said it would be. And they just followed his instructions. Question for us, do you trust what Jesus says? Do you trust what God instructs you to do? Now, it would be easy if doing what Jesus says just meant things like preparing for the dinner meal, even a special dinner meal. But he says other things, too, like 
We must put our relationship with him ahead of all other relationships. But before all of our family, Jesus is to come first, not second. He says things like, take up your cross and follow him daily, every day. Walk with Jesus. He says things like, we are to put his kingdom priorities ahead of all of our desires and all of our wants. His priorities first. Now, the great thing is, if we can get our priorities lined up with his, and life can be good. Uh, we are to lay up treasure in heaven. We're to be generous. We're to give of our finances. We are to love one another so the whole world will know. Not just, you know, show up at church, but we're to love one another so the whole world can tell there's something about you, something that attracts me. I want to know about your relationship with God. Now, when you think of it, all of God's word is what Jesus says. He is God. Doing what Jesus says is just about living by faith and taking God at his word. Do you trust Jesus in everything? Because he just wants to be your Lord. He wants to lead your life. He wants to be the highest priority. And the amazing thing is, he, he has your best welfare and mine all of the way. Verses 15 through 18, we see the importance of this meal. And he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Um, the Passover was important because God wanted his people to remember his power to deliver his people. He wanted them not to forget it. He, he wanted it to be instruction. He wanted it passed from one generation to the other, that the adults be teaching the children about what God had done for them and about their roots. And Jesus said, I've eagerly desired. This is great emotion, very deep emotion on Jesus' part because he knows what's right ahead of him. His disciples aren't quite sure yet. And he knows this is his last time because this is what's going to happen before he suffers. Verse 16, for I tell you, I will not eat it again until it's, it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. This is the last supper together. There is great meaning and significance in the Passover meal, but what Jesus is about to do is going to... Uh, point to a much greater significance than the Passover in the Old Testament. Jesus will again celebrate with his disciples. It'll be after his death and after his res resurrection, and it is when his kingdom comes to this earth. Verse 17, after taking the cup, he gave thanks. Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you, I will not drink it again Drink again from the fruit of this vine until the kingdom of God comes. So the, tra the tradition of the Passover comes with four cups of wine. I'm not sure it would be four cups of our wine. I think it was one uh, container that was passed around, so I doubt if they drank a glass each time they did. 
doesn't really make any difference. And if you're worried about it, the alcoholic content was probably quite a bit lower than what you uh, might find in the store. Um, bitter herbs were to remind Israel a part of the meal of the suffering during their 400 years of slavery. They were to be remembered this. It was a simple meal. It was a poor man's meal. And he is preparing for his departure from this earth. His work is almost finished. And then he comes to the instruction in verses 19 and 20. Um, Jesus is going to change the Passover meal. He gives new instructions for his followers. And so he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. There's going to be an exchange my body for you, and this is to remind you. Now, there's a lot of confusion about this concept. Some people think if you eat the bread, then you're eating Jesus, and you're, you're receiving Jesus to yourself because some spiritual miracle happens with the bread when you say certain words. I don't think that's Jesus' intention at all. I think the focus is on this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is a memorial to Jesus to cause the church to stop and to think about the great cost of our salvation. So Jesus took the bread. He broke off a piece because it came out of a loaf. It was unleavened bread. It was a poor man's bread. And he made this profound statement. This is my body. He speaks as a metaphor. It's a figure of speech. He's not saying, this bread is my literal flesh. He's saying, this is symbolic of my body. And the key is to do it to remember. Remember, remember. Just like the Passover wasn't about if you eat the lamb, you're going to get some kind of supernatural thing. Or if you take the bitter herbs, you're going to get some kind of supernatural thing. It was to do it to remember what God had done. Verse 20, in the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. This is huge. We take this for granted. We've heard it so many times. The disciples had never heard this before. This cup, right after they he, he said this about the bread, was now symbolic of a new covenant. That is really rare. There was an old covenant we call the Old Testament. It was the Mosaic covenant, and it included 613 laws and a great sacrificial system in Jerusalem at the temple. And Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. He hasn't died yet, but he's speaking prophetically and his blood that will be shed on the cross will inaugurate a new covenant that never existed before. Yet it was prophesied in the Old Testament. And he said, this cup, which is of, uh, the, that is the new covenant in his blood, is poured out for you. It's, it's for you, just like the bread uh, is given for you. It's a sacrifice for you. It's a substitute for you because the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The new covenant 
is going to replace the old covenant. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 33 speaks of this. Jeremiah the prophet, so 7th century, 8th century B.C., the days are coming, Jeremiah says, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. It's not the Mosaic covenant. It's not that law of, of all 613 commands. This is a new covenant. Next slide. Because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. That, you know, that's kind of interesting language because we, we, we see the church is the bride of Christ. And here God says, I was a husband to the nation Israel. They were my people. Verse 33, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time. He's talking to his disciples in Luke 22, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their hearts and I will write on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. There's going to be a big change coming. There's going to be a conversion coming. There are going to be new hearts, converted hearts because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And it's going to have a major impact on the hearts and minds of people and it did not exist in the Old Testament under that legal system. This is the new covenant. The significance for us, we know 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 28, and the Apostle Paul tells us about this significance. He says, for I've received from the Lord. So Paul, the church planner, apostle, got this from Jesus, and he now institutes it for the church, for us, until the kingdom comes. And we don't do the Passover uh, any longer because of this. This is what we celebrate, God's deliverance over sin for all time because of the death of the Passover lamb, who is now also named Jesus. I received from the Lord, but I also passed on to you the Lord Jesus. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Well, gee, that sounds a whole lot, a whole lot like what Jesus said, doesn't it? Next slide. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Jesus' death inaugurated something new, a new covenant, a new relationship between man and God. And he said, do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. It wasn't that the cup was blood or the cup got changed to blood. It was the cup was a metaphor and a symbol of what Jesus did for us, what he gave for us, his costly death for us. And then he said, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When we celebrate communion, we look back at the death of Christ and we remember, but we also look forward because this is not, not all there is. Because there is something coming that's even greater than what we know today. Until Jesus comes. We're going to do communion until Jesus comes. Then I think there's going to be some kind of a change. And I don't have all the answers. When that happens. Next slide. 
So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Paul was serious when he wrote these words. God is serious about when we celebrate communion. Um, And there's a danger for us. The danger for us is taking God for granted. The danger for us is that we just would go through the motions. The danger is taking communion nonchalantly. The danger is not acknowledging our sin. The danger is doing it because everybody else is doing it. The danger is playing games with God. And I just want to remind us today that this is really important. It isn't just something we, this is what we do at our church. God intended us to take this seriously. He is Lord. He's the one who loves us. He he is the one who delivered us from the power of sin. He is the one who wants us to submit to him and to follow him and to be obedient to him. And everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. We have this responsibility to be serious, to examine our own lives before God. We must do this. We must be serious, and we must be sincere. In verses 21 through 23, we jump to the betrayer is identified, but the hand of him who is going to betray me, Jesus said, is with me in the table. So Jesus just keeps stepping ahead, providing direction to what's going on. Now he's informing his disciples who the betrayer is. John the apostle gives us a little more information. He asked Jesus, who is it, Lord? John 13, 26 through 30, Jesus answered, it is the one whom I give to the piece of bread when I dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. So there he's identified at the Last Supper. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered him. So Jesus told him, what are you about to do? Do quickly. But, not, but no one at the meal understood why Jesus said to him, last, last slide, since, Jesus had, since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. And I think that's not only the Apostle John's way of talking about, well, there's no longer daylight. He's also saying, The evil is very present. The darkness is taking over. But there is still a light. Verses 22 and 23, the Son of Man, Jesus says, the Son of Man, referring to himself, will go as it has been decreed, but woe to the man who betrays him. God had ordained all of these events. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, This is the sovereign plan of the sovereign God. Um, Jesus is not losing any battle. These things must happen just as God has decreed. Verse 23, they began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. And next week we get to see which one of them is the greatest. 
But now they're just sort of checking off. Is it you? Is it you? I wouldn't do that. Would you do that? So Jesus instituted what we call the Lord's Supper or communion. And my question for us is, do you take communion seriously? I'm sure you've already thought about that. Do you take communion seriously? Now, we're not taking communion today. So this isn't like pressuring you to do anything, but to be well-informed. Um, do you sometimes just go through the motions? Verse 27, um, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Sin is invasive. One sin can lead to another sin. It multiplies quickly. It creeps in easily. It can take... Uh, and it can open the door even to the demonic. It can place us also under God's hand of discipline. And that's what 1 Corinthians 11 goes on to say. God sometimes uses events in our lives to get our attention when we get sloppy. And sometimes it can be rather stern. So... Let's just start fresh today. If we need a do-over, let's get a do-over. But let's just allow God to examine our hearts and just so that we can um, be honest with him and our sin can be confessed. And You may be in a good place today or you may need to make an adjustment or a realignment, but let's just take that opportunity as we close uh, this morning. Father, I just want to thank you for Jesus' words and how he lived, how he trusted you. Thank you for his instruction to us about his priorities that he desires for us. And God, we do want to um, just reflect on our, our own lives. There are times that we can be sloppy in our walk and we can really betray Jesus. We can knowingly do something that we know dishonors him. God, uh, point out in our lives anything that you want us to change, anything that you want us to confess, anything that you want us to walk away from. May you speak powerfully in our lives this morning. Thank you that you've given provision for our sin, that Jesus died for our sin. Thank you that you've given provision for us to restore uh, our relationship when we fall down in our walk. We have a promise that if we confess our sins, that he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us of all unrighteousness. I thank you that for sins that have been confessed today, that you forgive and that you cleanse and that you purify from all unrighteousness and that we can be clean and we can know it because you have said it in your word. You have given this promise. May you fill all of us with your Holy Spirit, empower us to live for you and to walk uh, with you, and may we do it joyfully. May we represent Jesus well. Amen.